Let's pray together. Father, as we begin this morning, we think of your words to unrighteous Cain. When you said, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And we know, Father, that the same is true for us. There are evil impulses within our own hearts. There are forces outside of us, Satan prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. We know we face perils within and without that would seek to undermine us and destroy us and our witness as a church and divide us. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this word to unite our hearts together in the truth of the gospel. Lord, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom Rayner uh, wrote an article a couple of years ago titled, 25 Silly Things Church Members Fight Over. And so what he did was he asked his social media followers to just write him and tell him stories about things that people in their churches have fought about or have split about. And he selected out of these responses that he got 25 of the ones that stood out to him. So this isn't a scientific ranking, but these are real stories, okay? So I'm going to share some of these with you. Uh, number one, a church had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. A real argument in a church, division. Uh, one church had a, number two, fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. Um which sounds relevant to us. Thankfully, we put it on the third floor. No dispute. A church dispute of whether or not to install... Get, listen to this. A church dispute over whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. Now think about that. There was a group of people in the church who did not <laughs> want to install restroom dividers in, in the church. Who did that in public? Talk about not being seeker-friendly. 45-minute heated argument in a business meeting over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer, a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. Matt, no shirt, no shoes, no service. I planned that. Um, business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. Tom Rayner said that was a wacky uh, argument. Sorry, it's bad. <laughs> arguments over what type of green beans the, sh the church should serve. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. One church, when they changed it, a lot of people left. 
an argument of, of whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the potluck. <laughs> deviled eggs, the satanic eggs. A disagreement, this is number 18, a disagreement over using the term potluck. Some people wanted to use the term pot blessing. <laughs> I say pot meticulous sovereignty. Anyway. Um, a church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server. It looked too much like liquor. And uh, Tom Rainer said that Beth Moore confessed that she was the one who did that. So, Division is always a danger in, in a church. And, and these examples are funny when they're viewed anonymously and, and from a distance. But in real life, this kind of division in a church is not at all funny. And I wonder how many of you, if we were to pull the congregation right now, how many of you have been in a, in a divided church at some point in your life? There are some in this church who could come and tell you a story or two about what a divided church is like. And I guarantee their stories won't make you laugh, but they may make you cry. And there are some in this church who have been in churches where the congregation was divided against the pastor. There are some who have been in churches where the staff was divided against one another and beset by rivalries. There are some in this church who have witnessed a congregation divided against itself where the people are immersed in controversy, contention, gossip, slander, and all manner of backbiting and bad behavior. What happens to a church when it is beset by this kind of behavior? It not only causes misery and heartache for those who are inside the church, it also causes the church to lose its witness to those outside the church. Jesus said it this way in John 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Well, guess what? If that love is absent and conflict and dissension is there in its place, people are not going to believe that we're disciples of Jesus and we're not going to be bearing witness to them. Division doesn't merely undermine the tranquility of our fellowship. It also undermines our mission to the world. If we fail at unity, we fail at the Great Commission. And so it's this it's precisely this kind of unity that the Apostle Paul is trying to preserve in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you haven't done so already, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17. And as I mentioned in our last message on 1 Corinthians, Paul founded the church at Corinth during his second missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapter 18. And after ministering there in Corinth for about a year and a half, which was a pretty long time for Paul's uh, mission to, to be in a place, he was there for about a year and a half. He was eventually forced to leave. And now he's writing this letter that we know of as 1 Corinthians about four to five years after he had left the city because he's heard that things are not going well in Corinth. And the very first issue that he addresses in the church is this issue of division. And so in eight verses, we're going to trace at least three exhortations that we can discern from the Apostle Paul that he wrote to this divided church at Corinth. So here's, here's my three uh, points that we're looking at this morning. He's going to make the appeal for unity. 
the warning against division and the priority of the gospel. So in verse 10, he's going to make the appeal for unity. Verses 11 through 16 are the warning against division. And verse 17 is the priority of the gospel. So take a look, first of all, at this appeal for unity in verse 10. Look what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, when Paul says he's appealing to them, what he means is I'm a, he's exhorting them. And this exhortation, he says, is by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that he intends for his words to have the force of an apostolic command. To exhort in the name of Jesus is to exhort on the basis of the power and authority of King Jesus himself. So it's as if Jesus is entreating the congregation at this point. What does he command? It's a command for unity in the church. But he expresses this single idea of unity both positively and negatively. Look, he says, positively, he says that all of you agree and that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Negatively, he says, that there be no divisions among you. Now think about the positive part first, that all of you agree. That phrase means literally that all of you say the same thing. A very literal translation would be that all of you say the same thing. If you're saying the same thing, that means you're agreeing. If you're saying contrary things, that means that you are arguing and you're divided against one another. But Paul's commanding that they say the same thing, okay, which means agreement. He also says that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. The term united is interesting. It's the same term that's used in Mark and Matthew of mending fishing nets. And so it has the idea of putting something, um, it has the connotation of restoration to a prior condition, putting something in order that has fallen into disarray. And so the question is, what, what needs to be put into order? What needs to be restored to unity? Well, he says that they have the same mind and same judgment, which means to have the same way of thinking and the same purpose or intention. So it's unity in thought, unity in purpose. Now, you put all that positive part together. He's saying that the church is supposed to be thinking along the same lines and speaking along the same lines. No arguments and dissension. And that's not only in the way that we are behaving towards one another openly and what we say, but also in the way that we think and believe. Unity of, of mind, unity of speech, unity of confession. Look what he says negatively, though, that there be no divisions among you. And that term translated as divisions is the Greek term schismata. It's, it's where we get our English word schism. And it means the condition of being divided because of conflicting aims or objectives. It's a division of opinion that leads to a division of words. Open conflict within the church. So, so, so what's Paul saying here? He, he's, he's saying, got to have unity, no conflict. Is he saying then that Christians have to be united no matter what? And that they can never have disagreements about anything? Is that what Paul means? Well, let me ask you this. What if someone were to come into this church and were to begin saying, you know what? I don't like 
how all the white people and the black people and the Asian people just sort of all sit around the sanctuary mixed together. I think we ought to have a white section and white people can serve the white people communion. We ought to have a black section and black people can serve the black people communion. And the Asian section and the Asian people can serve the Asian people communion. Every ethnicity, its own section and their own servers. We separate when we come to communion. What if somebody comes into our church and begins sort of spreading that around, trying to persuade people that this is the right way to think about our congregation? What are we going to do? Are we supposed to just stand aside in the name of unity? Don't say anything. No disagreements. No divisions. Are we supposed to express no disagreement with that essentially racist point of view? Now, the answer here is obvious, right? Paul's appeal for unity does not mean that we never disagree with unbiblical points of view. That's not what he means by that. In fact, it means quite the opposite. The unity that Paul enjoins means that we must disagree and do so openly in cases like this. How do we know that? Well, because later in 1 Corinthians, Paul confronts a situation very much like the imaginary one that I just described, except the division at communion in Corinth was not along racial lines, but along socioeconomic lines, and the wealthy people were standing apart from the poor people during communion. And Paul says to the church, I hear that divisions, same word, schismata, I hear that divisions exist among you, for there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. This means that you can't go along to get along when it comes to bad doctrine or bad morals in a church. If you go along to get along with bad doctrine, bad morals, or racism in this case, then you are a part of the problem and not a part of the solution. You must call out the sinful behavior, whatever it is, and tell that person in the name of Jesus to repent of the sin. Somebody might say, well, you know, Denny, if we call people out, if a guy is a racist and we call him out, uh, that would be very controversial. How are we supposed to have unity? Like Paul's commanding, if we pursue that kind of controversy, there's How's that going to happen? That's, that's a fair question. But, but the answer to that question, it may be ironic, but it's no less true. The only way to have unity in a church is to pursue that kind of controversy, the kind that raises up the standard of God's word in the face of error. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me, which means preaching the Bible in a church does not divide the church. It unites the church to the truth. You raise up Jesus's word, guess what happens? God's people rally to the truth. Now, you're going to hear the opposite today in sort of popular evangelical culture, which is don't ever say anything with too sharp doctrinal edges. Don't teach too specifically about what it is that you believe you might drive people away. Wrong. The way that we are supposed to preach the gospel is a way that's clear and so that the people of God can hear it and they can rally to the word of Christ. The best way to divide and, weakens God, and weaken God's people is to pull the standard down within a church. You want division to flourish? Then stand down when the racist comes in and begins saying those things. That's why in this church, if somebody comes in and tries to divide us along racial lines, 
that person's going to get disagreed with. That person will be offered the opportunity to repent. If he refuses, eventually God's people will unite together to deal with him in discipline. And that's the way we're going to deal with open and unrepentant sin. It would be grievous if it came to that, but it would also unify us in truth to disagree in that sense. So the, the reason I'm, I'm belaboring this point is because when Paul says that there should be no divisions, he means that there should be no one dividing themselves from the truth. That's what he means. And when he calls for unity, he means that we should be unifying around what is essential, the truth of the word of Christ. So we don't stand down in biblical and doctrinal clarity in order to preserve unity. That's how you lose your unity. You have to hold up the standard. And Paul says, I'm appealing to you to be unified. No divisions from the truth. Stay unified in the way that you think, the way that you believe, and the way that you speak about what you believe. So it's an appeal for unity in verse 10. But the second thing in verses 11 through 16 is the warning against division. Look what he says in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So now Paul's explaining why he had to appeal for unity as he's writing to the Corinthians. Why he has to ask for there to be no divisions. Because he's heard that there are indeed divisions in Corinth. Chloe's people, we're not sure who these people were, we think perhaps some people who were traveling back and forth between Corinth and Ephesus. Paul's writing from Ephesus. Chloe, I think, was probably a church member in Ephesus. Anyway, they traveled back and forth between Corinth and Ephesus, and Paul's heard about what's going on there. Chloe's people have told him that the Corinthians aren't saying the same thing. They're not agreeing with each other. Rather, they're quarreling with each other. And look what they're quarreling about in verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says... I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They sh they're supposed to be saying the same thing, right? They're supposed to be agreeing with one another, but instead they're saying different things. And these little slogans that he quotes, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, these little slogans that they're bandying about in Corinth reveal that they have been cultivating these little cults of personality around their favorite teachers. Some of them are following Paul, some Apollos, some Peter, and some of them Christ, they say. And it's not surprising that some people would be loyal to Paul, given that he spent 18 months with them. He founded the church there in Corinth. It's also not surprising that maybe for some of the people in Corinth, Paul has lost a little bit of his shine. Uh, Paul himself seems to indicate that he's not the best speaker in, public, in person. Um, perhaps some in the church were not pleased with Paul because he refused their patronage when uh, he didn't allow the church to give to him. You remember he worked with his own hands when he was with the, the Corinthians, he says in chapter 9. So for some of them, perhaps it's, you know, they, they, you know, Paul is not as impressive as he may have first seemed. And we know also that Apollos preached in Corinth after Paul left, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. And we know that Apollos was a man of great eloquence from the book of Acts. 
So it's no surprise that many of the Corinthians uh, perhaps had transferred their loyalty to Apollos. Here's this great speaker, much more impressive in person than Paul. Cephas is another name for the Apostle Peter. It's hard to imagine how Peter could have had a following in Corinth without his actually having traveled to Corinth. Some people think perhaps he did travel to Corinth after Paul was there. But who's this fourth group, the I follow Christ group? Seems like everybody would want to be in the I follow Christ group, doesn't it? Um, but Paul puts it here parallel with these other groups that he's going to say something negative about. So what, what's wrong with being in the I follow Christ group? I think this fourth group was likely people who thought they didn't need a Paul or a Peter or any other authoritative teacher. They believed they heard directly from Christ. Who needs the Bible? Who needs God's apostolic revelation when you've got your own little personal hotline to Jesus? But here's why this wasn't good to be in that group either. Because unless the resurrected Christ has appeared to you and appointed you to bear his name to the Gentiles, unless you're an apostle, in other words, you can't do a Jesus, Jesus juke to Paul. Okay, You can't one-up Paul or Peter and say, I'm listening to Christ directly, not to you. Whatever a person's personal impressions are about following Jesus, their wrong impressions is if they're not in, in agreement with the apostolic gospel of Jesus as it's revealed in Scripture. So Paul repeats these slogans, four different factions it looks like. These slogans reveal what the problem was in Corinth. They're descending into celebrity worship and into one group, maybe some kind of holier-than-thou Jesus juking, but they're not following Christ as he was preached to them in the gospel. And so they're divided against one another based on their devotion to different teachers. And so Paul attacks their divisions by attacking their errant theology. And he does it with a series of rhetorical questions. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, the answer to each one of these questions is obviously no. Christ is not divided. Paul wasn't crucified for them. They weren't baptized in the name of Paul. Everybody knows that. It's a given. And so it's as if Paul is saying, if Christ isn't divided, then why are you divided? If I wasn't crucified for you, then why are you treating me as if I was the decisive factor in your salvation? If you weren't baptized in my name, then why are you acting as if you were? And perhaps that last bit was the issue. Perhaps there were some in the congregation who were declaring their loyalty to the teacher who had baptized them. Perhaps they believed that the status of the person who baptized them somehow trickled down to them and gave them some sort of exalted status. And so these slogans are like um, a humble brag. I'm so thankful that I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. Maybe their words reflect a self-exalting impulse. They gained a sense of self-importance and pride in their chosen teacher. Paul, thinks, Paul senses that something is wrong, and that's why he says what he says in verses 14 through 16. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. 
What's Paul saying here? Paul's thankful that he didn't do a lot of baptizing while he was in Corinth. Why? Well, look at what he says in verse 15. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Which means, I'm glad I didn't baptize a lot of you. Because it apparently would have tempted you to make your humble bragging even worse. Some of you have heard me tell the story before of a church split that I witnessed firsthand when I was in seminary. And the split that I witnessed was essentially the very thing that Paul is talking about here. The church was a fairly traditional church with a pretty traditional mode of worship and preaching. And at some point, the church decided to start an evening service. That service was to feature contemporary worship music and this young, eloquent preacher. The senior pastor led the traditional services in the morning. This young pastor led the contemporary worship at night. You know where this is going. You can tell the rest of the story. Over time, the, the evening service grew. It had a ton of students, a ton of young, single adults, and a sprinkling of families who, who attended the evening service. The morning services had a lot of the older folks and a lot of families with children who were in the children's group or maybe in the, the youth group. The morning people loved the senior pastor and his preaching. The evening people loved the young pastor and his preaching. And functionally, what we ended up with in our church was two different churches under one roof. And the people in the morning service said, I am of Paul. And the people in the evening service said, I am of Apollos. And that's how the lines were drawn, essentially. And it all culminated in this town hall meeting of the members and the elders. And the elders sat on the stage and about a thousand people gathered in the congregation this one night. People went up to the microphone and variously complained about the elders who were seated on the stage. And the elders themselves were divided against themselves. There were accusations and general nastiness from people coming up to the microphones, and the people were just lined up. Occasionally, somebody would get to the microphone and say something like, why can't we all just get along? But it was mainly just, you know, nastiness and accusations. And the nastiness just seemed endless as people were lined up. And at one point, um, I saw in one of the lines, one of my seminary professors, and I thought, oh, good, finally, somebody's going to come speak some biblical sense into the situation. He got up to the microphone and he let loose with the same vitriol as everybody else. Accusing the elders of being liars, pointing at them from the floor. The church just ended up splitting with the young pastor starting a new church down the road and the, the older church staying right there where they were. But here's the thing. We never should have been having that fight. There was plenty of blame to go around for what happened, but the underlying issue was people's loyalties were divided up over their devotion to different teachers. And it wasn't a difference over some salient or central theological point. It was a difference over preferences of who was their favorite teacher. It was just plain old, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, factionalism. It's one thing for a church to unite to disagree with error. It's another thing entirely for a church to divide to disagree with each other's preferences. Maybe Apollos really was a better speaker than Paul. Paul himself seems to indicate that, that such was indeed the case. 
But that doesn't justify celebrity worship of Apollos over and against Paul. It may be true that Paul founded the church in Corinth, but that doesn't justify celebrity worship of Paul over and against Apollos. They were both preaching the same gospel, professing the same Christ, and propelled by the same spirit. It's satanic to divide God's people over a preference between two faithful teachers. To press such a division reveals that your loyalty is not ultimately to Christ, but to a man. A man who didn't die for you. A man in whose name you were not baptized. Is this relevant to us? We're in a church. We got two main preachers in this church. We got a ton of gifted teachers teaching in our Sunday school classes. We're not going to promote divisions based on our rhetorical preferences. We can't allow that. What are we going to do then? We are going to strive in our own hearts to love Christ so much that we glory in the gospel no matter who's preaching it. That's what we're going to do. And that goes for how we think about preferences for preachers and teachers outside of the walls of this church. We can even get factionalized sometimes over well-known preachers and theologians. I'm of Sproul. I'm of MacArthur. I'm of Stanley, I'm of Piper, I'm of Chandler, whoever. And a real root of dissatisfaction can creep into your heart when you begin to compare those famous guys with the guys you got to listen to every week. And again, you can become too fixated on a preference and render yourself no longer capable of hearing the gospel when it is preached to you by guys who are not going to be headlining big conferences. You need to beware because that kind of spirit is dangerous for your soul and it can inoculate you from ordinary gospel preaching, which is what you really need. Every one of us needs that more than anything. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, charity in all things. This means, in part that we are supposed to allow for diversity in areas that are neither here nor there. Unity in the essentials of the face, but there can be diversity in issues that are neither here nor there, the areas of our preferences, love in all things. If we're really going to have liberty in non-essentials, then we're going to have to have forbearance in non-essentials. It means that sometimes there are going to be certain things in a church that irritate you. And sometimes those things that irritate you have more to do with your preference than with righteousness or with something clearly revealed in God's word. Every one of us is going to have to learn how to forbear in those situations. You cannot have a church where everybody's insisting on their own preferences. Love in a church is going to be manifest. Unity in a church is going to be manifest in our willingness to forbear with one another forbearance when people sin against us and we forgive, but also just forbearance with preferences that irritate us. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So Paul gives us an appeal for unity. He also gives us this warning against division. The final thing though, Verse 17 is the priority of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, I think verse 17 is hearkening all the way back up to verse 14, where Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you, so, except, you know, these few people. So I, he's thanking God he baptized none of them. Why? Verse 17 explains why. Because Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's the logic. Now, it would be easy to read this and to conclude that Paul is somehow denigrating baptism or saying that baptism doesn't really matter that much in the big scheme of things. There's lots of commentators who say that. And some people will use a statement like Paul makes here to say that we shouldn't get bent out of shape about whether a person is baptized or whether they had an infant baptism or whether they were immersed in a believer's baptism or something like that. Some people will use a statement like this to downplay baptism because they think Paul is downplaying baptism. I just want to say that's a wrong way to read this. Paul is not downplaying baptism. He is simply making reference to his unique commission from Christ to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. There are many people who can baptize, but Paul was specially appointed by Christ to preach the gospel. After all, John chapter 4 verse 2 says that Jesus himself baptized no one but left the baptizing to his disciples. But that practice did not mean that baptism was not important to Jesus. Jesus was the one who gave us the Great Commission, which is the mission of the church. And guess what the Great Commission says? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus leaving the baptizing to other people doesn't mean that he thinks baptism is unimportant. It's a part of the Great Commission. So Paul's not denigrating baptism. He's simply following the example and the calling of Jesus on his life. His aim was not to make sure that he was the one doing all the baptizing. His aim was to preach the gospel. Why? Because preaching, in the word of one commentator, preaching was the spearhead of the Christian mission. That's why he wanted to do this. In his commentary on this text, Charles Spurgeon said it this way, and I'm going to read to you. He said, there were other people who could baptize for him. It was enough for him that he should concentrate all his energies upon that one matter of preaching the gospel. Not that he neglected the divine command, but that it was not necessary that he, any more than his master, should baptize personally. For we read that Jesus baptized not, but his disciples. Not to put a dishonor upon the ordinance of baptism, but to let us see that the ordinance does not depend upon the man, but upon the sacred name into which we are baptized and upon the true faith of the person baptized, end quote. So Paul didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel in that sense. And then Paul clarifies his mission even further, not to baptize, but he came to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now think about this. The, the Corinthians may have been impressed with the eloquence of Apollos, but Paul says that eloquence is not really the point. The point is not the form of the preaching, but the content of the preaching. It's not rhetorical flashiness that saves people. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And that gospel can land with power even 
in the simplest gospel presentation. It's the gospel that saves, not the preacher who saves. The gospel's power does not depend in any way on the eloquence of the preacher, but on God's power. To say that it depends on the eloquence of the preacher is to denigrate God's power. And that's why Paul's concerned here. That's why we ought to be concerned. I I believe American evangelicalism is often heavy on silliness and light on substance. We want our ears tickled. We want our heartstrings tugged. We want our insides to shake when the worship band plays. We want the preacher to look hip and to sound appealing to people who go to clubs and jump up and down to house music. In other words, much of American evangelical subculture prizes form over substance. They believe that that if we just ape the trends of the world, the world will somehow join us in following Jesus. And you just got to know that's a fool's errand. And it's why you have some churches that have fog machines but no gospel. Listen, we are not wise by the world's standards. There is no way to dress up the cross. There's no amount of eloquence or trendiness or hipness or coolness that will ever complete the Great Commission. We resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our message. That's the gospel. And if we want people to come to us, we have to raise up that message. And if we do, Christ's people will hear his voice and they will come and they will stay. None of that other stuff is going to bring them in in a way that's saving and a way that's lasting. So here's Paul's appeal. These, apparently the Corinthians were, had become impressed with rhetorical flashiness. Some of them liked Paul, some liked Apollo. They just like, they're dividing themselves based on their devotion to different teachers. And Paul's saying, no. He makes an appeal for unity. He warns against division. And he points them back to the priority of the gospel. Do you see that? You know, and that's really... The message that God has for us from this text. Our main thing, we have to keep the main thing and we have to work to keep it the main thing. Our main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners as it is revealed to us in the scriptures from Genesis to the book of Revelation. That's our main thing. And we are appealing to sinners on the basis of those truths. And they're not going to come in and be saved. You're not going to be transformed and be changed because of eloquence of any teacher. It's going to be because of that word. Listen, the Bible teaches. Maybe somebody's here. You don't even know what the gospel is. You just need to know the Bible teaches that every single person in the world is a sinner. All of us are sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, we are under God's judgment. But God has sent his son Jesus into the world to die for our sins on the cross. He took the punishment upon himself. And the Bible teaches that God raised him up after three days in order to give us eternal life. The Bible says you can't earn your salvation. But if you trust in Jesus, crucified and raised for you, the Bible says he will save you by grace. All you have to do is to repent of your sin, turn away, and trust in Jesus. That's what we're all about That is the message of Christ in him crucified. 
Anyone who is here who has not believed in that message, you need to believe it. Because that's the only message that's going to save you. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that for those who are here who have not believed this message, I pray that you would powerfully convict them of their sin, convince them that they need you, and cause them to believe. And Father, I pray for our church. Lord, there's just many potholes that we could step in of division of dividing over things that we shouldn't be dividing about, of failing to divide over things that we should be dividing about. And Father, I just pray that you would sow our hearts to your word so much that it becomes our reflex and instinct to follow what you say in the scripture. Father, I pray you'd guard us, protect us, keep us from division. Where we sin against each other, I pray you'd make us quick to repent. Where we irritate one another, I pray that you'd make us quick to forbear. And I pray that you'd bless us and make us fruitful as we love one another and as people see that we love one another, they understand that we are disciples of Jesus. So, Father, this is something we cannot create within ourselves. We didn't create within ourselves. It's not even something we can sustain within ourselves. We are dependent upon your, your powerful spirit to do this among us. And so, Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.